This is Chris. Welcome to episode 234 of X-Lapsed, where if we were to take all the X-Lapsed programs, put them into one volume or playlist or however you want to word it here, using some Marvel legacy numbering, this would actually be X-Lapsed legacy number 300. That's a uh, pretty big number. I never thought we'd hit 100. I never thought we'd hit uh, 13, to be honest, but uh, here we are. <laughs> this is uh, episode 234, legacy number 300, counting all the miniseries, the Pride of the X-Lapsed, uh, the Essentials, all that stuff here. 300 episodes, thousands of hours, a uh, whole, uh, whole lot of time spent on this uh, little project that could. And being as though this is an X-Men show, my mind immediately goes to uh, Uncanny X-Men number 300, uh, which is a book that came out... Uh, probably about a year, year and a half after I started reading and collecting X-Men comics in earnest. And I remember thinking that you know, it was part of history when you got that book because it's a huge number, uh, especially for a kid who doesn't know any better. <laughs> 300 issues, it's uh, it's astronomical. Nowadays, it's uh, not only astronomical, it's just uh, uh, never going to happen again probably. But uh, I do remember feeling how important that was as a milestone and also... Feeling very intimidated that I wouldn't be able to collect the previous 200 and some odd issues that I had missed out on. And eh, so far, so good. I'm working my way through <laughs> filling out that collection. Maybe one of these days I'll have them all. But today's book is going to be Marauders number 22. This had a September 2021 cover date. The story is called The Morning After, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Matteo Lali and Klaus Jansen. Hmm, we'll get to it. Colors, Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X for now is Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale July 21, 2021. Now, this one's got a very familiar cover if you're following along with the Hox, Pox, Docs, Socks, Rocks era. Um, this one's very reminiscent of New, uh, not New Mutants, Marauders number two, which had uh, Emma and Sebastian back to back in front of a chessboard. Here we have Emma and Lourdes Chantel back to back in you know, very similar position, uh, pushing pieces around. Uh, this time we have uh, Sebastian Shaw's little chess piece. Tipped over on its side, and that will make sense as we work our way through. But the issue itself opens with a Fox News joke. Um, must be more of those uh, Don conservative wingnuts who are nervous about that, uh, you know, that group of very powerful people who just terraformed the next planet over. Uh, you see, the gimmick here is that the reporter on the channel is so dumb. How dumb is she? Well, she's so dumb she doesn't realize how many planets from the sun Mars is. 
In any event, I'm sure this one panel bumped the issue up an entire review point for some reviewers, so, I mean, what are we going to do? Uh, but, I mean, Jerry, we get it. You don't like conservatives. Jerry, I love you. I love you. I've been advocating for you to take over this line for a long time, but could we, could we just, like, not? You know, this is getting getting tiresome. Anyway, in the other news stations are obviously better represented. Uh, we see a reference to Phalong Industries, who are listed among the hardest hit by the Krakoan terraformation of Mars. And, of course, this is a reference to Jerry Duggan's own X-Men flagship title. A BBC stand-in talks about the UK pulling out of the Krakoan Treaty. Now, also, they state that the cost of mutant magic meds have quadrupled in Ireland, which causes all sorts of panic. Now, the final panel on our opening page shows that the Scarlet Witch is, in fact, still dead. That kind of reminds me of that, uh, that old Chevy Chase joke from when Saturday Night Live was still funny with, uh, was it Francesco Franco is still dead? You know, we, maybe we can make a meme out of that. Uh, the Scarlet Witch is still dead. Anyway, double-page spread of roll call and cred follows, and our characters include Emma Frost, Sebastian Shaw, Charles Xavier, the Stepford Cuckoos, and Wilhelmina Kensington. Back to comics, and we join Emma Frost, who, uh, must be wearing some double-sided tape to keep her robe from just flying open up top. Or maybe she just diamondified her nipples? I don't know. It, whatever the case, this robe is holding on for dear life. Anyway, she looks a bit hungover, and there's a newspaper on the table which reads, Krakoan Gala and Secrets. Now, the Stepford Cuckoos enter the scene. They're heading home, but they might stop in New York City first. One of them senses that something is wrong, and on the beach they find Wilhelmina Kensington of the Hellfire Tots and Omenes Verendi, and it looks like she just snapped a poor Puffin's neck. Though, she's uh, very apologetic about it, and even tries to claim that this is the way she found it. The Cuckoos are pretty surprised because they thought they'd fixed her during the gala, and I must admit, I had uh, completely forgotten that that scene happened in the first place. From here, we head to the Quiet Council Chamber, where uh, Sebastian Shaw is back among the upright. Uh, looks like his time in the wheelchair was uh, always going to be temporary. Um, it sounds like uh, there was some sort of agreement to play here, where he'd be killed and reborn, you know, uninjured following the gala. He tells Emma that there's a fair amount to clean up after the event. Then, Charles Xavier enters and asks to speak with Emma in private. Now off to the side, after mentioning that... Uh, the Scarlet Witch is, is in fact still dead. Uh, Xavier speaks of the first thought to pop into Shaw's mind after he popped out of his gold ball. It was about resurrecting his lost love, Lorda Chantel. You remember her? If you don't, you should. Uh, you did pay an extra dollar last month to meet her, and she's also on the cover of this issue. In any event, Charles Xavier claims to not know her, and so he hit the Marvel Wiki to do a little bit of research and made a rather bizarre discovery. A discovery that doesn't surprise Emma Frost. And so he asks Emma which of them ought to deliver this news to Shaw. Info page. It's the X-Force profile on Wilhelmina Kensington, and it's kind of redacted, but it's a, you know, it's basically a retelling of her story up until now. And the redacted bits will start to get filled in pretty quick throughout this issue. Wilhelmina was believed to have killed her mother by shoving her out a window... And up to this point, she's been written as kind of, like, sadistically silly, like, cartoonishly so. Um, she was mostly fleshed out during the post-schism Wolverine and the X-Men, though, so, I mean, it stands to reason she's going to be a little bit sillier than your garden-variety supervillain. And that's not a bad thing, though I suppose mileage may vary, and if your mileage does vary, don't you worry, because we're about to serious her up quite a bit during this issue. Let's get back to comics. 
Now, since the cuckoos fixed her, Wilhelmina is starting, finally starting to feel like regret about everything she's done, which brings us to quite the reveal. And by quite the reveal, I mean it's a pretty obvious, low-hanging fruit bit of past trauma that uh, kind of feels like Duggan's using a get-out-of-jail-free card while also taking aim at uh, a safe target. I'm not sure this works quite as well as it's supposed to. I mean, Wilhelmina is basically a walking, itchy, and scratchy cartoon. I don't know that we need her to be three-dimensional, but... uh, The reveal here is that she was sexually abused by her father, and the cuckoos offer to go with her to avenge the abuse, and, uh, well, Wilhelmina's all about it. Back to the Quiet Council. Uh, Emma and Shaw have a chat about Lourdes. Now, here's the thing. Lourdes cannot be resurrected. And that's not because she died before Cerebro Backup started being a thing, but because she never actually died in the first place. Now, you see, that classic X-Men backup story didn't quite play out the way we thought it did. Sure, and us, uh, we only saw what Emma wanted him and us to see. And so, she tells him the story the way it really happened. And we shift over to Klaus Janssen art, and woof. Um, We go back to the Night of the Hellfire Gala, the old Hellfire Gala from classic X-Men number 7, and of course the backup from the previous issue of Marauders. Here we see Emma getting dressed, and she's joined by Lourdes, who has a black eye. You see, Shaw beats her up. Seems like kind of a parallel with uh, the Wilhelmina story in the present, I suppose. Now, um, she would like to get out of the Hellfire business. She would like to get far away from Shaw, but she doesn't think she'll be able to. So that night, during the gala, the Sentinels attack, just like they did in the original story. And Emma... Well, she sees an opportunity to help Lourdes escape here, and that would be done via faking Lourdes' death. And so Shaw and Leland, and us, see Lourdes harpooned by a big bot, and she, well, dies. Shaw vows vengeance, and so he and the mutant members of the Hellfire Club kill all the human members and take the club over. After the dust and blood settles, Emma reconnoiters with Lourdes to tell her that, uh, well, you're free to go wherever you want. But... She doesn't quite know where to go, and she's still scared that Shaw will find her. And so, Emma calls in a favor with an old associate of hers, the Kingpin. So, Emma and Lourdes, they meet with Fisk so that Emma can offer up Lourdes' services as a teleporter for the big man. And Big Willie ain't interested. But, hey, you know what? If, uh, if Emma herself decides to help him out with a few uh, choice missions, he'll see to it that Lourdes will get a new opportunity to live life and never have to deal with Shaw again. And so, Emma begrudgingly agrees, but she refuses to talk about what he'd made her do. So, maybe this is planting some seeds for later? Maybe it'll, you know, never be revealed? I mean, it doesn't really matter, I suppose. Anyway, we wrap up the issue with Shaw and Frost finishing their conversation. Emma makes sure that sure, sure that sure, I'm sorry guys, she makes sure that sure knows that she despises him, obviously. And she only agreed to work with him for the betterment of Krakoa, and that is that. We go to an info page before we cut out of here, and it's a letter to the Quiet Council from Bishop, which hints that Harry Leland might be moving up the resurrection queue. Now you see, he was killed by Nimrod back in Uncanny X-Men 209, September 1986 cover date, And now that Nimrod 2.0 is a thing, which, you know, had been awakened in X-Men Volume 5, Number 20, which we discussed back in Episode 210 of this show, 
perhaps Leland might be of service. And, uh, well, that's where we leave the issue. Next episode, um, I guess maybe we can call it Weekend at Gabby's? Uh, it's, uh, it's New Mutants in any event, but uh, we will get there when we get there. But for now, let's talk about uh, this issue of Marauders, which was not my favorite. First of all, where's the cast? Like, where are the Marauders? I feel like we don't ever see them. Like, where is Bishop? He wrote a letter. <laughs> where is he? Hell, where's Call Me Kate? Where's Pyro? Where's Iceman? Where, where's the Marauder itself? I feel like we're spending way too much time with uh, this slap fight between Emma and Shaw, which, you know, it's not uninteresting, but, I mean, we're going to talk about an issue of uh, New Mutants next episode, which I've already read, and without giving too much away, it does a really good job of uh, giving the entire cast an opportunity to get a little bit of panel time. Reminds us what everybody's up to, reminds us who is part of the book, and for a book like New Mutants, which is basically every mutant under the age of 20, so that's a pretty big cast, and uh, Vida Ayala does a pretty good job at uh, making sure that all the stories keep moving forward here. Here in Marauders, I mean, it's like we forgot that there's a team. It's all Shaw and Emma all the time, and maybe that's an unfair criticism since they are... A big part of this uh, this book's cast, you know, so it stands to reason that they would loom large in it. And it also might be unfair that, you know, we've been building to the damn Hellfire Gala for the past year, it feels like. So, I mean, the, the book itself and the cast of the book and the mission statement of the book are kind of, I don't know, secondary? I don't know, hopefully that'll change in the uh, coming issues here. I know we do have something going on with, uh, with Banshee and Tempo are going to be... Either permanently or temporarily on the team, so hopefully we get some uh, we get some actual marauding coming uh, coming pretty soon here. Another thing about this issue, and uh, we kind of coined the phrase last episode of the episode before that of Akamix Razor, where it's like you take the most obvious way that a story can play out and you just do that thing. Here we're trying to make uh, Wilhelmina Kensington a little bit more three dimensional and. I mean, we are in, of course, the fantastical Marvel universe. There's a lot of ways we could have done that. And it could have been something silly, it could have been something insane, it could have just been something that really fit the tone and tenor of the character. As I said, she's basically a walking cartoon character bent on violence with no remorse. And it could have been for any number of reasons that she uh, behaved this way or acted this way. And uh, Duggan went with the most obvious, uh, the one that I think many of us probably saw coming as the uh, scene was playing out. It had to be uh, childhood sexual abuse, and um, certainly that is something that unfortunately happens, probably more often than we want to uh, think about it. It just feels a little template for uh, a comic book story. I feel like we get this a lot. To the point where it almost seems like a cop-out, or it seems a little lazy to define a character by past abuse. I don't know, maybe maybe it feels like an oversimplification, maybe it's uh, doing a disservice to actual uh, victims of abuse here. Whatever the case, I'm just not comfortable with it. It just doesn't work for me. Um, I do get that there were parallels between what happened to Wilhelmina and what happened to Lourdes, in that they were both taken advantage of and abused by uh, more powerful uh, men. I do appreciate that it leaves Lourdes's story open. You know, this could be revisited somewhere down the line. And also, we do get uh, some breadcrumbs as to some misdeeds that Emma Frost had to do from uh, the Kingpin, which I guess is a third instance 
of a woman having to uh, do the bidding or just deal with the whims of a far more powerful man. So maybe this was the rare triple parallel or the trifecta, if you will. That's very possible. I suppose I should mention the shift in art here. Of course, we do have uh, Matteo Lali on the current day stuff, and we've got Klaus Janssen on the callback to classic X-Men number seven. And, uh, I really didn't care for the Jansen stuff here, which is weird because I, I remember liking his work on Daredevil, which I'm pretty sure this was supposed to evoke, considering that, you know, the Kingpin, uh, right now I think he's synonymous with a lot of characters, but when I was growing up, he was synonymous with Daredevil. It was Daredevil versus the Kingpin basically all the time when I was growing up, so it makes sense that it would be Klaus Jansen, but... Uh, this just didn't look great to me. Um, I can understand folks digging it. Uh, I'm someone who still enjoys John Romita Jr. art, which is a somewhat divisive take, right? I know a lot of folks out there consider him as having a uh, rather lazy pencil at this point, but uh, it's still comfort food for me. So I guess if you are a Klaus Janssen fan from the long ago, this might too be um, comfort food. Um, now, one last thing I want to mention, and it's uh, it's silly, but it's uh, something I would like to mention. And I hope nobody sees this or hears this as an endorsement on any sort of political ideology over the other, but uh, in the past few Jerry Duggan books, we're getting some cracks at one side of the American political spectrum here, which, I mean, everyone's free to have an opinion and to share an opinion, but uh, with the push toward inclusiveness in comic books, and with the understanding that this is an industry that seems to get smaller by the week, you know, I think every week we lose some of the readership. And I question the wisdom of uh, actively trying to push away potentially half of your American audience by, uh, by mocking them. And again, I don't have a dog in this fight in the slightest. I just don't think it's smart for any writer of any political bent to try to uh, make, like I said, potentially half their American readership feel bad, dumb, or lesser than. And I'd be making the same observation if it were a conservative creator poking fun at a liberal readership because this industry is small. <laughs> this industry is getting smaller constantly. We, the last thing we need to do is hasten the attrition of a readership here. It's a, it goes back to the Michael Jordan quote where he was called to uh, say some bad things about a party he uh, doesn't agree with. And his reply was, well, people in that party buy shoes too. And, well, I guess uh, they buy comics, at least for now. <laughs> at least for now. Um, I know from my own listenership, I've got listeners all across the political spectrum, left, right, center, taking a bit from here, a bit from there, and I respect all of it. I respect all of it, and I want everyone to feel comfortable here and not feel like I'm going to try to make anybody feel bad or inferior or lesser than uh because of their political ideologies. I, I'm very cognizant that I'm just an idiot talking about comics <laughs> into a microphone every day, and nobody really wants to hear my hot takes on uh, the world at large here, because uh, right now my main hot take is that someone needs to invent a tastier egg white. I'm on an egg white diet at the moment, and uh, boy, that's bland. So if anybody can make a tastier egg white, I will. Uh, you'll get my vote. You will get my vote. And hey, while you're at it, if you can make a less chalky-tasting protein shake, I'm all about it. So uh, that's my thoughts on this issue of Marauders. Sorry for the uh, tangent there, but uh, whenever I see a writer or creator go out of their way to try to insult some of the fan base, I just can't see a single benefit to doing that. But that's just me. 
Anyway, let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 19. Now, Damien says, I'm starting to wonder if what an issue of X-Force needs for me to enjoy it is for Beast to be absent, because I really enjoyed this one. Maybe it's my hatred of the character assassination of Beast that stops me for stops me falling for X-Force. Of course, Benjamin Percy did have to include the most irritating text page in months just to keep me hating. Why would you put a conversation between your protagonists on a text page? That's not seasoning, that's the bloody main course. And a couple of things there, yes, um, that's a Percy trademark, right? Uh, just having a text page or an info page or data page, whatever we're calling it, just be dialogue. Like, dialogue that could have been drawn. Dialogue that should have been a page or two of actual sequential art relegated to an info page. I don't understand the logic of that. I feel like it's such a cop-out. It's such a waste of um, the info page format, which, like it or hate it, warts and all, it's something that is special to this era of X-Men, right? It's something that's something that was introduced during Hoxpox that we've grown to maybe not so much love or appreciate, but accept as part of this era. And there are times where it's used very well. There's times where it's used very creatively. And then there's Ben Percy, who basically just throws a page of his script into a book. And as for Beast, well, um, you know, my fan ficky mind here, I've got my own headcanon for why Beast is the way that he is. So I've kind of, I don't know, come around to him? Uh... <laughs> I feel like I'm subscribing to my own content here, where I like, I like my ideas and rationale for why Beast is acting with such a reckless abandon and with uh, no real ethical framework. And uh, for folks who haven't heard my theory on that or my headcanon on that, I view Beast as someone who was hamstrung by ethical code during some, you know, near extinction events for uh, the X-Men and for mutants at large here with uh, things like the legacy virus, things like the endangered species followed following uh, House of M. The responsibility for getting to the bottom of both of those events was uh, laid on Beast's shoulders, and considering he had to work within an ethical framework to very, very slowly try to figure out both of those things, well, now... He doesn't have those handcuffs, right? He's not quite as hamstrung by ethics. He's allowed to do whatever he thinks he needs to do for the betterment of Krakoa or for the salvation of Krakoa. And so he is making up for lost time, you know, and he is doing the thing that he would have done had he not been um, beholden to ethics. Is it perfect? No. Is it right? No. But, uh... I don't know, I do enough mental gymnastics to kind of make it work. <laughs> now, uh... Damien continues, I did continue to love Gary Brown's art. I like horror elements being scratchy and abstract rather than Kassara's realism, which sometimes is a little too freaky. Your point about the faces being vague is right, but I think that works quite well on a book like X-Force where subtlety is not required. To use one of my mom's old phrases, it is, quote, as subtle as a hang glider flashing, unquote, which, uh... Yeah, I think we're going to have to steal. <laughs> I think we're going to have to use that as a descriptor in uh, in some of the less than subtle uh, scenes that we get in these books. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on X-Force, and uh, apologies if people have heard my headcanon on Beast for like the 300th time at this point. <laughs> I guess it just stands to reason that any opportunity I get to uh, promote that theory, I'm going to, uh, to do so. So thank you for uh, facilitating that, Damien. I really, really appreciate it. 
Uh, next up, we got Evan talking about X-Men number one. And Evan says, Somehow I jumped to Children of the Atom without weighing in on X-Men volume 94 number one. Now this time travel stuff is confusing. Of course, Evan is time traveling right now. He's bouncing around the back catalog here. Some books he's reading on Unlimited, some books he's reading in real time. Probably even before I do considering the uh, DCBS struggles I've had over the past couple of months. Now, Evan says X-Men number one was pretty good. It set the stage well, and the stuff with Ben Urich nosing around about Jumbo Carnation was interesting. I'm not sure why I wasn't more exciting, excited about the X-Mech, but it just didn't quite land for me. I can't point to anything bad about the issue, and hearing your discussion of it made me appreciate it a little more than I did after my initial reading. It did feel headed in the right direction, and it was good to see the X-Men can still be the X-Men, even with a new status quo. I enjoyed issue number two, but that's getting a bit ahead, when otherwise I'm behind in show terms. But if the arc keeps heading up like that, we'll have one heck of a trade. Or, you know, some great single issues. Now, it's funny that you mentioned the X-Mech, because I was prepared to hate the X-Mech as being a little too cute. Uh, Of course... People on the internet love to spoil things, and so we saw the X-Mech, or I saw the X-Mech, like, the day the book came out. And it was like, oh, well, look at this wacky, random LOL thing. And uh, everybody was yassing all over it, and it was like, oh, man, I'm going to hate that. (laughs) I am going to hate that little bit of randomness. And then I read it, and it worked for me. It worked for me in a few different ways, uh, mostly because... It allowed Sync to use a little bit of outside-the-box thinking to take care of this uh, new threat. And uh, it showed that this new group of X-Men was going to... They were going to do the mind meld, right? When they were trying to plan and plot, it's like, well, let's take all the ideas and put them together and see what we come up with here. And uh, Sync, being perhaps the youngest member, I mean, his hundred years in the vault notwithstanding, he comes up with something that... On the face of it, looks a little immature, looks a little childish, but it works. It works, and the rest of the team co-signs it, and they're able to make it happen here. And, of course, we get the adorable little X-Mech, but it's also functional, and it uses the uh, strengths of each of uh, Everett's teammates. So I, I liked that in the reading, I was prepared to hate it before I opened the book. But I do agree we are headed in the right direction, and um, we're actually going to be getting the X-Men number 2 episode a bit quicker than uh, many might be expecting, because since uh, it took DCBS so long to get me my package, they actually included the first week of uh, August's books, which include X-Men number 2. So we will be covering that one not too long from now. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on the uh, landmark first issue of Volume 94 of X-Men. Uh, Next up, we got Meal, who's talking about X-Force. Meal says, I give this book way too much leeway, and there are two reasons for that. The first is that Ben Percy was the writer of the Green Arrow comic that has Ollie calling himself a social justice warrior. That's, in all senses of the words, hysterically amazing. The second is, is because the book has Quentin Quire in it, who I love reading about. I just find him full of so much untapped potential. Now, I do remember that Green Arrow issue uh, making some waves, not for the story, of course, because nobody cared about the story, but uh, I'm trying to think if I'm conflating my timelines or not, but I think a lot of folks viewed that as like an also-ran to the Mockingbird cover with the uh, Ask Me About My Feminist Agenda thing. I can't remember off the top of my head how close those were in proximity to one another, but I do remember them being mentioned in the same breath. 
And this uh, already lets me uh, steal that line from Damien. Uh, ben Percy can be as subtle as a uh, hang glider flashing. And while I collected that entire run of Green Arrow, because uh, I am an addict, uh, I didn't read it. I did read his Teen Titans, though, which I hated. I actually had to review that uh, Teen Titans book for a DC fan site, and oof, not my favorite take on the Titans. Meal continues. Remember during issue 10 when Jean left, and the buzz was that X-Force just lost their moral compass. I mean, come on, Jean shouldn't be anybody's moral compass. This series has its highs and lows. Highs like issue 17, lows, Gambit and the others apparently being so bored that they would show up to the McCarthy trials. I want to like you guys, damn it, and I... Pretty sure that's a reference to uh, Colossus being frog-marched for all of his friends and teammates and uh, cohorts in the X-Men for the crime of being Russian. Which, I mean, this is a Ben Percy book, so Russians are the bad guys all the time, it seems. Outside of Zeno, which we will get to in a minute. But, uh, yeah, no matter how much mental gymnastics I can do to kind of lampshade Beast's behavior, I can't do it with that one. Speaking of which, Meal continues, let's talk about Beast. I personally am of the opinion that what has happened to him in this run isn't character assassination, it's instead just just the continuation of his moral decay that's been happening for a while now. So while I can sympathize with people who want their bouncing beast back, it's like asking for a pre-crisis Jason Todd back. He's not coming back. And it could be fun for him to go full evil, and because he does have so many ties, pretend that he's still good, and still resourceful, and still screw with people's emotions. I do like where they're going with him, although it makes me want to punch him as well. And, uh, hey, have I told you guys my headcanon for Beast? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, I, I won't do it again. I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, Meal continues. I won't lie, I forgot Zeno existed, so whoops. And seeing how 24 will most likely be a tie-in for Inferno, we're probably not going to be getting any answers until November or December. Just do what I do, forget about them. And yeah, Zeno has been the thorn in our side for the entire run of this book, and we're not seeing much of them, and when we do see them, there's not enough to care about. So when we don't see them for a while and they come back, it's not like a, ooh, they're back, it's just like a, oh yeah, I forgot about those guys. Huh. Yeah, so Zeno is not being handled too well. Emil continues. Veg thingies are horrifying, especially when you realize that the world just completely glossed over a bloody genocide. Although the world does have a track record of things like that. Just like Gene and Wolverine moaning over X-Force losing its moral center while Gene does nothing to get the bloody genocide executioner out of a position of power. And that does call into question the checks and balances, right? Which is something we've talked about, where X-Force... Depending on which book we're reading, there's sometimes, you know, an equal power to the, uh, the Quiet Council, other times that they're completely outside the purview of the Quiet Council. It's, uh, it's dicey. I don't know how they, I don't know how they fix this, you know, if it's something that needs fixing in the first place. I figure there's going to be some sort of implosion, um, and I couldn't even tell you if this book's going to survive Inferno at this point. Uh, I feel like we're headed to something of a crescendo. And perhaps a new status quo within our new status quo. So, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get those answers sometime soon. Uh, and maybe we'll never, ever see Zeno again. Who knows? Uh, Meal continues. Wrapping up my notes, Colossus deserves better. I love Kid Omega, and Phoebe is superior to Jean in every way. So until Teeny Howard starts writing an accurate Britain, <laughs> be mine, X-lapsed. 
Well, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but I don't think I'm allowed to even make that observation or pass that kind of judgment. So I'm glad you did it for me. Um, You're right, Colossus does deserve better here, especially considering how prominent he was on all the promo stuff for X-Force. I mean, he's on the cover of X-Force number one, and we have barely seen him since. You know, he had that fun two-parter, and fun, I say in quotes, because it was a a very heavy story, but it was fun to analyze. That story with Domino talking about things like suicide and whatnot, which only proves to us that Ben Percy can write a compelling Colossus, which makes the fact that he is not doing so very often all the more infuriating and all the more frustrating. So yes, I totally agree with you, Emil, and I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, give us your State of the Union on all of the books in the line here, and uh, that's definitely something I would invite uh, any listeners to do. I love I love having these conversations. I love going back to the beginning of this run and uh, just uh, take an inventory and seeing where we were, where we began, where we are now, how we got there. Just uh, seeing it through everybody's prism so we can get a better appreciation for the run overall. So thanks so much again, Meal. And that will do it for the mailbag. Uh, But before we go, we do have some shout-outs here. Just uh, thanking the folks who clicked the heart, clicked the thumbs up, clicked the little spinny thing to help spread the word about the show. Over on Twitter, uh, Jesse DeYoung, The Longbox Crusade, Between the Pages Blog, Joe Crawford, Professor Frenzy, Billy D, and Jeremiah. Thank you all so much for spreading the word. And then on Facebook, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Jesse DeYoung, Billy D, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, and Chris Bailey. It probably shouldn't mean quite as much to me as it does, but uh, I assure you, it really does mean a lot to me. So thank you all so, so much. And uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. So you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And I've already got a few voicemails in the hopper for our big one-year anniversary spectacular that'll be coming up in about a week's time. So I want to thank the folks who've already called in and uh, thank everyone in advance who may decide to call in and make me feel a little less silly for spending 12 months on this project so far. Uh, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for blog posts and show notes. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that is, of course, available anywhere that the internet aggregates noise and sound. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!